Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, we are kicking it old school. I am doing the episode breakdown for this week's episode of Better Call Saul called Black and Blue, the fifth episode of season six. And Sona's here to help me break down the episode. I usually have been doing these by myself. Only two more episodes of uh, this batch of seven, which is the first half more or less of this final season. So we are getting close to that end of this first half. But before we do that, I have a very interesting conversation I had with Sona regarding last week's episode. And if you haven't seen that one, you should definitely check that out. And I also have a breakdown of last week's episode in last week's episode of our podcast. And we get into some uh, very interesting points that Sona made specifically around the female characters in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And a really strong analogy I think she made about the way female characters are used and represented in Sopranos, which is a show that is, of course, much older and in some ways a parent to Breaking Bad. So check that out. That is coming up right now. Make sure you subscribe so you know when these episodes become available. Drop us an email, need some introduction at gmail.com. If you have any reaction or want to add anything to the show, we can read your comments on the next episode if you'd like us to. We just wrapped up Moon Knight recently, so check out those episodes if you haven't already. I was a little disappointed with that series. But if you are watching it, check out our commentary. And also, I've been recapping Shining Girls with my sister over the weekend, and that episode just dropped as well. And in that same episode, my review of the new Marvel film, the Doctor Strange sequel. So lots of content. And if you were curious about any of that, check it out. Recommend it to your friends and family. So with that out of the way, let's hear my conversation with Sona breaking down last week's episode. And then we'll be back to discuss this week's episode, Black and Blue. All right, Sona. So any Mother's Day's plan? Any Mother's Day's? Ah. Oh my God. Any Mother's Day plan? I had a glass of wine, so maybe this is a problem. <laughs> I slur so fast when I drink. It's really embarrassing. And I don't hear myself slurring. It's the worst part of the whole thing. At least you were aware of it. <laughs> Any uh, Mother's Day plans for you tomorrow? We are going to see a play to celebrate Mother's Day and my husband's birthday, which just passed. Oh, yeah. And then we are going to have pizza with my mom. Nice. Oh, and what play are you going to watch? American Buffalo with Lawrence Fishburne. Oh, yeah. I know the uh, Mammoth play, right? Exactly. Oh, great. What are you guys up to? We are having everybody over here. So my sister's coming. I just recorded with her yesterday, by the way. And now I'm going to see her again. We talk to each other constantly now because of the podcast. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Charlotte's birthday, of course. Always had a big part of that, too. So uh, my mom's coming over. She's coming over. Kim's making brunch for everybody. A lot of moms. Lots of moms. And happy Mother's Day to anybody out there. You won't be, I won't be posting this until after Mother's Day, but shortly after Mother's Day. So still valid. Happy Mother's Day to everybody. So when I was recapping this episode of Better Call Saul, I got through it pretty quickly. I mean, this is very much a middle episode of the season. Agree. But I was curious to get your general feel. And then I did have some conversation points that really piggybacking on some of the points you brought up last week. My completely not fully formed thought about the role of women in Better Call Saul. <laughs> it's very but like, let think- me just throw this out there without ever thinking <laughs> it through and see what you think. <laughs> no, but I think that I think that was a valid point. The show is so well done that it I is. really don't think about this. And I think it's a valid point to make. But in a way, I also think, and maybe that's why I wanted to touch on this topic. I think this show, this episode, I should say, is a little bit of a corrective to that. And and I guess I want to get your feel for that. But in general, how how did you feel about this episode? Before I get into that, just as an aside, after we Mm -hmm. stopped talking, I was thinking about how I had just like thrown this out there without really 
fully considering it, which is not all that helpful, but I started thinking, well, you know, I was talking about how this is a very male-centered show and probably members of drug cartels are mostly men. And so maybe I'm not being reasonable and complaining. And then I kind of started thinking, well, okay, let's compare it to The Sopranos. I mean, the mafia is mostly men, but The Sopranos uh, did a lot with the female yep. characters. I think, totally you know, agree. still it was from a very certain perspective, but I mean, to this day, I think about the episode of The Sopranos where Adriana died and I was so yep. traumatized by it. I actually had a nightmare that night, which never happens to me. I never have nightmares at all, never mind from TV shows or movies, given The Sopranos ran for a very long time as well. Yep. I just in contrast, I think that's another show where the basic premise is something that would be male centric, but I think they actually did a lot to develop the female characters and show their inner lives. So I just wanted to share that before I forgot. No, I think you make an excellent point there. And once again, something I hadn't considered to parallel the two shows, but I agree a hundred percent. You think about Carmela, you think about all the women that just- Dr. Were, Melfi. Yep, yeah, Dr. Melfi. But let's say just all the women that he- you know, had these affairs with throughout yes. the course Gloria, of that show. Was, was that her name? The, the car, car dealer lady, Gloria? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Every one of them is such interesting characters with interiority. His sister obviously is, you know, has her own. Oh my very gosh. Strong personality. Oh, I forgot about her altogether. Yes. Oh, wow. And who is maybe the biggest villain on that whole entire exactly. show? Exactly. Tony's mom is probably yes. the biggest villain on that whole show. So Absolutely. yes, you make an exceptional point. Really, you think about all the greatest lines and all the most memorable you know, hits and everything are all very, very male focused. But you think about the women on that show and they're all incredibly strong characters and they all were like the drivers of the plot in many ways, uh, in subtler ways than were obvious on that show. But I think I think you make an excellent, excellent point. Yeah. And I think in some ways, looking back on it, I don't think I gave The Sopranos, which I love, but I yeah. don't think I gave it enough credit for that at the time, you know, but Right. Now contrasting it, I'm, I'm kind of feeling like, well, they could do it. Why can't other people? Absolutely. And that was <laughs> and earlier. It's not like it's just something that's like some kind of like cultural exactly. correction. You know, that was the very beginning of this whole concept of these, you know, elevated dramas, right? That was yes. the beginning of this whole wave of more complex antiheroes, right? So there would be no Breaking Bad without The Sopranos, but The Sopranos is a whole, almost a decade earlier, right? So there's no reason they couldn't do it 20 years ago. They can do it today. Although uh, definitely a bigger conversation there, right? About whether they are obligated to do that. And right. can't you just mm -hmm. tell the story that you want to tell? And if it happens to be all men or it happens to be all white people, you know, do you really owe anyone anything more than that when it's your story that you want to tell? Why can't you tell it on your terms? So maybe something bigger to consider there. Totally fine. I totally agree that it is absolutely fine to tell your story from whatever perspective you want. And you could have nothing but men in this show. Fine. That's absolutely fine. But then to have a female character be so important to the plot and then not give her some of the complexity that, yes. uh, that the other characters get, even in, you know, there are characters on Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad that were relatively minor, minor characters that, you know, fans love because they have this uh, deep, empathy for those characters. And to your point, I don't know if that extends to the female characters. So. Interesting. Okay. So I feel better now. At least I've um, <laughs> explained myself <laughs> a little bit more <laughs> than I did last week. Uh, to get back to your initial question about the episode. I mean, listen, I loved the beginning and the end <laughs> with yeah. the whole Gus storyline there about 
what's going on in his house and the underground tunnel and just the way that Gus chooses to live and his particularity (laughs) about things and his fry cook not being up to snuff for the fast food chicken (laughs) place. Um, I found all of that very entertaining. Where we spent more time, I felt, on this Howard stuff. I don't know. It's just not doing it for me, to be honest. I know you mentioned that you like the heist, and I thought that um, that was pretty fun. (sighs) You, you didn't, it didn't work for you? I don't know. I think it, it, it's, I'm getting maxed out on it. I hope it's leading someplace fast because I'm not sure how much of the caper I can watch more than <laughs> I've already watched. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm suddenly turning on it. <laughs> I just didn't love it. I don't know. I don't know if you heard my recap last week, but my concern when I was watching that, I couldn't help but think about Bob Oderkirk straining to pull out that post. And I'm like, was this yes. that caused the heart attack? Oh, I couldn't goodness. help but think about the heart attack. So, <laughs> <laughs> probably not the intention of the showrunners, but that was my thought I, at the moment. I was actually, I, I've been kind of thinking about that throughout the time I've been watching. <laughs> of, hmm, do you guys see any signs of someone being in some sort of cardiac distress? Yeah. <laughs> what did you think about the whole conversation she has with Mike? The mic part was my favorite part of the whole episode, I will Mm -hmm. say. Um, I don't think we've ever seen them talk to each other before, right? No, Um, I I believe that's correct. Right, because at the end, she says, I remember you now. You're the parking attendant. Right. I I was really riveted by it. I thought it was really well done. I thought it was really well acted by both of them. Her reaction at hearing that Lalo is still alive, her question of why are you telling me and not Jimmy and because you're made of stronger stuff, or sterner stuff or whatever the line was, I thought really gets to the bottom of what's going on with that dynamic, right? And Mike can see that just from from his perspective. He can see that Kim is the person to talk to about this and not Jimmy. Yeah, yeah, I love this. I thought it was really well acted, really compelling. One of those scenes where my eyes are glued to the screen. Yeah, it's just so great when you get these characters that obviously have been so strong on their own and then you get to have them play off each other. I do want to circle back to one more thing before I get to kind of my thematic things I wanted to mention. One is I really did like when she's talking to... Ed Begley Jr.? Where, where <laughs> yes, the, uh, yes exactly. The I can't think of him as anyone, but Ed Begley Jr. Uh, and this maybe piggybacks on the broader uh, point I was going to make as well. You know, you see her suddenly have some compassion and some regret for maybe this con that they're pulling when he seems open to help her out with this. Yes, you can have everything you say you want. Yeah. Yep. So now let me get into what I was curious about. So I was thinking already because of the conversation we had had, uh, you know, those points you make up about maybe the uh, what's lacking there in these female characters. And very interestingly, this episode was directed by Rhea Seahorn. I saw that. Yes. And right away, I noticed it right in the credits, but I thought immediately you suddenly saw that the focus of the episode was on Kim. And it's something as simple as she opens the episode with that shot of her ponytail. I don't know how much you love her ponytail. <laughs> but you Super see that ponytail. shot of the ponytail <laughs> and it's just the way that the ponytail is like styled and it's like so central in her personality. But more importantly is, and I've had this experience myself, by the way, when you're eating an outs- out there at cafe and you can't get the legs to all line up on those tiles. And she's just kind of scooting and she's just like, I scooting for like over a minute trying to get the chair right. And you know, she's doing that because she's a little nervous. She's a little uncomfortable about what's happening. And I thought that was very interesting that these decisions she made as a director, and that's really where, you know, maybe this needs, the show needs more of this. 
even in subtle decisions, she's showing you that interiority. She's nervous. She's fidgeting. Mm -hmm. She's nervous when Mike tells her about Lalo. And she is, mm -hmm. once again, as the director, making decisions to show us her reactions. Because I think in the past, I've had that confusion. Is she nervous about this? She's a little mm -hmm. too cavalier about this decision. And I feel like she's showing us at least her of course, this is all everybody's interpretations. She's showing us how she sees her own character, right? And I thought that was very interesting to kind of read the whole episode through that lens. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. Like, uh, while I did notice that she had directed it, I don't think I consider the perspectives of who is involved in actually creating the show and how that affects what we see in the way that you do, because I, you know, my background is just different from yours, and I mostly just sit in front of the screen and watch it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I definitely appreciate that insight because it's not something that I had really thought of. And I do see what you're saying. Absolutely. I feel once again, and, and this maybe is a bias from male directors that a lot of times when strange things happen on the show, she seems very tough or she seems kind of inscrutable, but we don't really get any kind of mm -hmm, feel agree. for her. And mm -hmm. I feel like in this episode, she has intentionally shown us those reactions, those sighs that mm -hmm. she has when Mike leaves the room or whatever, right? We are mm -hmm. seeing those reactions. And I think that is very much uh, what she is trying to bring as the director of this specific episode. So I do appreciate that. And honestly, thanks for bringing up this up last week. I don't think I would have been as sensitive to seeing these things if we hadn't immediately had that conversation right before mm -hmm. watching this episode. So <laughs> Lucky timing. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's all coming together. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this grand experiment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe she was uh, thinking, like, finally, a chance to show some more to Kim than just the damn ponytail. <laughs> exactly. And hopefully she'll get the, a chance to do more of that, especially if, you know, if she becomes more and more central to the plot. Yeah, agree. Speaking of all that, it, it, specifically to that scene where she's talking to the Ed Begley Jr. character, I do think that it's just so smart for the decisions she's making as a director here and, and the creators in general, the writers as well, that she has all this empathy for these poor her pro bono uh, clients. Her pro bono clients, exactly. Yeah. But I feel like she kind of has, like Jimmy, has this kind of chip on her shoulder for these people who are maybe of a different class than she came up in. And she doesn't kind of extend them the same humanity. And I feel like she is almost taken aback when she connects, really connects with the Ed Begley Jr. character over his son's addiction. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like she feels like, mm -hmm. oh, wow, like, yeah, you know, like rich people have problems too, right? And I feel like... <laughs> kind of speaks to the Saul character as well, because Saul's been caught in that trap multiple times as well, where he just sees somebody as a tar target and he kind of forgets that like, yeah, they're, you know, like they're not just villains. Like everybody's not just one thing. Right. So, and, and I think that's kind of something that, that they're, you know, that she may have forgotten there. Given all that, do you think this is a pivoting point for her? I think it's an important episode in a very subtle way, because do you think like with her being scared of the reality of Lalo still being out there, of her having this empathy for these particular targets of this scam they're pulling, do you think this is where she's going to start pulling away? Or do you think this is maybe ominous of something worse coming for her later on? Well, I guess that's been the question for Kim all along, <laughs> right? Whole time, right? <laughs> which way is she going to go with this whole right. thing? <sighs> Gosh, I... I always hate speculating. And with this, I, I hate speculating even more. I don't know. In a way, I feel like she's in too deep to pull herself out at this point. Yeah. Not that it couldn't be done. I think it definitely could be done. But what we've seen of this character, 
I don't think this character would pull themselves out, pull herself out after being in this deep. What do you think? Well, I would say a couple of things. One is I wanted to mention another great scene here that I think in a very subtle way, speaking to the quality of her direction again, once again, oh, I know very... which one you're going to say about being wicked. She and Jimmy are talking in bed and he has some quote about being wicked and she seems shocked that he's considering them as being wicked. Oh, yes, yes. That's a great scene, actually. And that actually piggybacks on a, a, a yet another question I have for you about their relationship in general, which I definitely want to get into. But OK, if... so I thought I had your guest <laughs> nailed, but that wasn't it. OK, <laughs> <laughs> that was a, that, that is great. You know what? That is a great scene that I forgot that specific line and, and her reaction to it, which I'm glad you, you remember reminded me of the scene I was thinking about is the one at the very end where she is seeing his office. Mm-hmm. And first of all, very interesting to once again, put you inside of her mind. You think about when you put an episode together, especially when you're directing, because the script is mostly the location and the words, but the performances and the shot selection is really where the director does most of their work. Mm-hmm. And I think about the scene where she's met with Mike and now she's inside the car and she's visiting. It turns out she's going to see the office space that Jimmy has picked out, right? Yes. But what we see is just her alone in the car. And then we see the knock on the glass and we don't see that it's Jimmy knocking on the glass. And she's startled by this, of mm-hmm. course, right? And once again, it puts us in this perspective that she is afraid, right? Potentially. What's interesting there is then you see her, he's showing her the office and she is, I think still, when you read her face, still very troubled by what's happening. Mm -hmm. But then she goes back into her steely Kim mode and she does the whole pluses and minuses. It's not that far from the courthouse. And hey, let's go get some tacos. Let's get tacos. Yeah. (laughs) But I feel like there's a moment there where she is very conflicted about all this. Once again, I think that the show is doing a lot of work here to give us some of her interiority. And I do worry, going back to my prediction, I do worry that, you know, a lot of times where they like flesh out a character, like Nacho. They're it's about because- to die. Yep. <laughs> They're about to disappear. And another clue here, which I worry about, is the conversation with Mike. This isn't the first time Mike warned somebody and they ended up dead within a couple of episodes. So Yeah, I mean, also interesting, right? Which it, it might just be that, specific time frame that we're seeing, but she doesn't run to Jimmy and say, guess what I just yes, found out. Absolutely. So correct. she may still tell him, but in a much more calculated and strategic way than yep. emotional, right? Because if it were emotional, you just blurt it out. Yep. <laughs> like we're in danger. We got to do something. This guy's alive. And she chooses not to do that. Exactly. That's incredibly important. I think you're absolutely correct. Theoretically, could be the very first thing she tells him and she yet she chooses not to. Yeah, she still is measured in her approach about that. So exactly. I'll be interested to see if she ever does share it with him or not. And we kind of skipped the whole middle of the episode, which is also very funny. Not only that physical humor, which I know didn't really work for you, but I think this probably yeah. did work better for you was yes. the fact that he uh, <laughs> he's basically now like the drug lawyer, which of course is great for business. <laughs> and the nail him- salon is packed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And he's like persona non grata at the uh, DA's office, but <laughs> he's a hit with uh, all these uh, criminals. They all have him on retainer. Yes. Writing numbers on people's hands as they're uh, (laughs) standing outside. And yeah, the whole uh, cucumber water is only for the clients (laughs) thing. (laughs) It was very entertaining. I agree. And we finally got to see that little clip that they keep showing in the commercial, right? Of who's here for Saul Goodman and everybody raises their hand. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. So two things. I find their relationship very interesting because for a very long time, I'm like, are they just buddies? Do they have sex? And then we've only explicitly seen them have sex 
like twice, I think, on this whole entire show. You know, this and- is so interesting that you yeah. raised that because yeah. that's something I've been watching this with my husband for the most part. He has been saying, like, if I look at these two people, they're just friends. There's nothing more right. going on here. They're right. just friends. So it's interesting that you're observing that dynamic also. It's something I hadn't given all that much thought to. Yeah, no, I think it's very important. And they have gone out of their way to show that they have this very nearly platonic relationship. I think they both see themselves as outsiders. She has no family. Jimmy now has no family now explicitly. And I think that they cling to each other for that reason. And for the longest time, I'm like, that's all they are. You know, maybe they cuddle and stuff, but they're not actually a sexual couple. And then, like I said, you know, they were celebrating last season and they had like an explicit sex scene and like, oh, they do have sex. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it was kind of surprising because I'm like, oh, because that's really not the frame we see them in traditionally. Right. So, I mean, I don't think it's a relationship of just convenience. Do you? I I think there's more to it than that. I guess in my middle age, I've just come to this perspective of, you know, relationships are different. What people are looking for is different. What seems dysfunctional to me can actually be very functional. And who am I to judge? Um, If it works for them, it's not my business. And so I am probably bringing my own personal perspective to that. And that's why I haven't questioned it all that much. But yeah, certainly you don't see the level of passion there that you would normally see when, I mean, we've basically seen these two since they met, right? I think normally you would see a lot more affection that we don't normally see. Obviously, you know, we, we're both middle-aged and, you know, things cool down when you get older in life. That's just what happens. But they're like an old married couple uh, now, which of course yeah. is <laughs> is the, the fate we all face in the future. But the, If we're lucky, please. <laughs> exactly. Good point. Good point. <laughs> But the reason I mentioned it, though, you know, it, this isn't always the case, but, you know, you have stories of like arranged marriages that become great romances later in life. Sure. You have stories of people that have these very, very hot and heavy relationships that cool down. And then you kind of come to sure. a different understanding, obviously. Right. So like you said, every relationship has a different trajectory. It wasn't yeah. like they were like really hot and heavy and then things cool down or they've been married right. for 25 years and this is where they're at, which makes perfect sense. It's like they've chosen this relationship when they would have other options. So this very interesting. As a child of an alcoholic who married a child of an alcoholic, <laughs> there is a lot <laughs> to that bond and that shared yes. experience yeah. of having that trauma and sharing your inside self with one of the few people you've ever met who knows what that feels like. And I think there is a power to that. Like I I have said to people, like, I don't know the statistics, but I would not be surprised if many children of alcoholics marry other children of alcoholics, because to be able to be intimate with someone who understands that experience is really, really meaningful. The point that you're making about the family relationships, I think that could go a long way towards bonding that. I think all of us feel misunderstood in our lives, but if you find someone who understands a really complicated part of you, that's something that you want to keep around. That's really interesting. And I think I was going to say something that I even revised a little bit just as you were talking, because I think you bring something to it that is really valuable. What I was going to say is that my read on the show has been multiple times, especially early on, that he was always trying to like impress her. I think he always felt mm-hmm. like she was too good for him, right? Mm-hmm. I so agree. he's he's yeah, kind of there just like in any way, like, does she want to be sexual? Does she not? I'll just be here in any 
context because he's just happy just to be to there be in her orbit. Yeah. Right. Cause she's just like better than he deserves in his own mind. Mm-hmm. That's what he feels. Meanwhile, on her side, I think the fact that he is not a Howard, uh, someone who is like overtly aggressive and thinks they deserve everything. She finds that appealing and mm-hmm. she likes the fact that he is this scoundrel in a way, right? Yes. That he is very sweet and yet he is, uh, but he's damaged, right? Like she understands his damage better than he does because he's always mm-hmm. running away from it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe that's that's the revision I just made when you discuss some of this, you know, family dynamic that I hadn't thought about fully until you brought up your example. You know, she also likes the danger of it. You know, she is a rule follower and she likes the fact that he's a rule breaker. I mean, he gives her an outlet for indulging that part of her that wants exactly. to break every rule, right? Exactly. And that's right. that's something too, I think, yep. that yep. you've got this part of yourself that especially the way Kim is, you know, might shock people that she's even capable exactly. of pulling these Giselle-type capers. Right. Uh, never mind the deeper stuff that she's up to, you know? I mean, I'm just talking about like a one-night scam. <laughs> yeah, right. Probably the people that know Kim would think she's never capable of that. So being able to indulge that side of yourself and show it to someone who embraces it and thinks it's so fun. I mean, that's really valuable too, right? What I think is interesting though, about everything we both just said is that, and maybe this show is trying to be a little more true to life where it has to do with the writers and the creators experiences personally, but if this was deep water, <laughs> like oh, God. What, what we just, what all that stuff we just explained, all that psycho drama we just explained is like a recipe for hot, hot sex, right? And these people are not having hot, hot sex is my point. <laughs> but maybe that's just movies talking and not reality, right? So it is interesting that they've chosen to not just be friends, but to make this right. a romantic relationship. And it's not entirely clear to me what the driver for that is unless and now we're kind of going full circle i wonder if this is just like a very simplistic view of male female relationships that either it's romantic or it's nothing i've always felt like she has more skeletons in her closet that we just haven't seen yet and and i do hope that that is the case and it's not what you're describing that maybe these like it's the blind spot from these male creators that they're like and she's just a hot lady and he's happy to be around her and that's like yeah extent, i mean maybe right? but i'm just <laughs> saying I, I don't think we've seen ever a platonic relationship between a man and a woman in breaking bad or better call Saul. that's true i mean and i mean you think about the sopranos as a corollary right like you know his relationships with women were all sexual i think the showrunners and the, and the people who created the show and wrote this character obviously want us to think about what is the underlying thing within the relationship. Because if they wanted it to be a generic relationship, there are ways you can see this, show them as an old married couple or show them as a hot and heavy, you know, there's just Mm -hmm. some sexual chemistry between them. Right. And they're intentionally not. Sometimes there's a chemistry between two people that you can't hide, even if you wanted to, even on a friend level sometimes, but this has no chemistry at all. Right. 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 (laughs) Right. Right. Not even that friend level of verbal sparring or whatever. It's just not, there's no heat at all. Right. And that's what makes me curious about that. You know, that this is the, the partners they've picked, (laughs) right? They've just, just the choices they've made. And I would imagine these are good actors. So I would imagine it's a choice on the part of the actors. There are definitely shows and movies where they're supposed to be like, they can't keep their hands off of each other. And you're like, these people have absolutely no sexual chemistry. That's (laughs) why. So I don't buy this for a second, right? 
But everything in this show, I think, is very intentional. And uh, I mean, even if the actors don't have chemistry with each other, you cast those people against each other, right? That was your choice. So that is what makes me curious about what that all means. And Mm -hmm. I do hope that that's explored more. And I think they will be. I honestly do think it will be explored more. All right. My last observation I wanted to make, and maybe this is a pivot in our conversation also, I was realizing this because I did watch the final episodes of Ozark. (laughs) All of them. Oh, you did. I'm only two in. Okay. I did watch all of them, but this is the only thing I'm going to say. No spoilers here. If you want to talk about them, we can. But the two that you watched, I should say, I find it so interesting to contrast them because I thought about very important, and maybe you've already seen some of these, but maybe it's later in the season of Ozark. There's these scenes where somebody walks into a room. This guy is going to have to put on the performance of his life to pull this off. And the next time we see that character, they're on the phone going like, I, I convinced them, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, And you we, don't see it happen. We don't see the conversation. That, in, that impossible conversation, the impossible hurdle. How did he possibly get this guy back on his side? We don't see that conversation. Yes. And I think in the first half of this season, we saw it with Ruth. Yeah. Was not giving the money and stolen the heroin. I don't remember what all it was. But she had to go to this drug house to get... Either the drugs back or the money back. I can't remember. Oh, right. Yes, yes. But I mean, it was really like these people are going to kill her. It's going to happen. And she just walks out with whatever it was she went in there for, drugs or money. And we have no idea how she convinced them to do it. And I felt that was really lazy. Right. And what I was going to say is a contrast between the shows, and they're very different shows, but you know, just to contrast them, I just found it interesting in Parallels as they're on at the exact same time, that on Better Call Saul, because they're playing an honest game here and why I appreciate the show so much more. And I didn't think about this until I made this connection, but I'm better call Saul when you're like in the nacho episode, when you're like, how is he going to pull this off? They give you a scene that's like, wow, that was like, wow, that was so convincing. He totally convinced me like a hundred percent on the board. It's like showing your work in a math problem, right? Exactly. Like- it's absolutely. You're showing all yeah. your work as opposed to that one. It's just like saying like, I got to get out of the situation. And then the next scene you're like, ha ah, man, I did it. But how did you do it? Yeah. <laughs> just just hand waving. Just hand waving uh, everything away. Everything's hand waving away. Just awesome. assume that this person's uh, charm and charisma carried the day. And, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Everybody likes Jason Bateman as much as you do. And that's what <laughs> that's <I'm- laughs> right. No one can say no to Jason Bateman. <laughs> exactly. Because you would just be like, I should kill you, Jason. But look at that smile. Nobody ever smiles on this show, by the way. Nothing ever gets a smile. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point and something that bothered me in the first half of the season. So I, I totally see what you're saying and I agree with you. And it is a little bit frustrating. All right, Sona. So that was our scintillating, scintillating breakdown of last week's episode. That was so nice of you and thoughtful of you to say about our conversation. Thank you. I didn't want to interject earlier, but I appreciate that. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. I even told Kim about it. Uh, not Kim Wexler, Kim, my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I have a personal relationship with Kim Wexler. <laughs> Ponytail Kim, as I like to call her. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes I do feel like that's the case. <laughs> Before we get into the breakdown, what did you think of this episode? I general? like this. I still am a little bit maxed out on this Howard subplot. Uh, talking about the Howard stuff, I did like the return to class action, nitty gritty mm-hmm. mechanics, because I used to be a class action lawyer. And so I do enjoy that, but I understand that's a very, very specific appeal. <laughs> um, most people watching this are not class action attorneys. Nonetheless, I did appreciate those uh, specifics that they discussed about why it takes so long and the discovery process and all of that. To me, it was a little much was that whole 
boxing scene I didn't really care for. Maybe they were just trying to interject something, you know, now for something completely different. But <laughs> it didn't really work for me. What did work for me in the Howard subplot, though, was the Ed Begley Jr. and Howard interaction I thought was very funny. I you know, I like the, the confrontation of, you know, you saw me throw a woman out of my car <laughs> and drive away. And I mean, how crazy that must sound, right? If you right. haven't actually done that. And the certainty of like, I know it was you. The, the license plate was the same. Right. I did think that was well done. And I enjoyed that. But yeah, all in all, I just need this whole Howard situation to move along, I feel. Um, the rest of the episode, though, I really, really enjoyed. I This is where my my spotty memory, I think, haunts me is, you know, I'm trying to come back to like, what is it that Lalo knew about this right. bunker being <laughs> yep. created? What yep. made him think that he should pursue this and go to, I don't remember if it's Germany or Austria, Germany, yeah, um, I think so. you know, to find this, this poor man's widow. Uh, so I was kind of distracted by that throughout, just trying to piece that back together in my head. Do you yep. remember the details of that? I don't. I actually think it's missing from the show right now. I do hope that they square that circle because I don't know why he would know about that construction. Right. Like not just finding out that this whole underground situation exists, but the people involved and what exactly. happened to them. And I mean, that level of detail, I have to say, I was just, and this is just the way I am. I was just a little bit distracted throughout trying to figure out how he figured all this out himself. I am remembering this is interesting. Wow. This is like such a flashback. Now, Mike is trying to get his wife to come and he's getting these like travel brochures to kind of pitch this thing to Werner to keep Werner happy. And Lalo is snooping around. And this is actually when Lalo basically kills that kid inside of that uh, behind the plexiglass. He like goes through the roof, through the ceiling because the guy like, and what's interesting is he kills that kid to see the, the, the footage of Mike looking through the brochures, once again, not really <laughs> giving us the clue. I'm not sure how we pieced all of that together to figure out Werner and all of that. So that, that is still a question mark. But uh, he was, uh, he, you know, it was almost discovered basically last season uh, because uh, Lalo was relentlessly pursuing, investigating that site. But, but still, I don't know how he connected the dots because they definitely live in a place where Werner is killed off before he spills the beans basically. So I, I don't know. I don't know how uh, he was able to connect that final dot. So what I did love also besides, I, I mean, I love the Lalo scenes. I thought they were so interesting. I also liked, you know, we're seeing Gus really shaken. One of the, the few times, really the only time I can remember off the top of my head, which was yesterday, um, seeing him very shaken by the idea of Lalo coming. He clearly is, very stressed out and anxious about it. And then we also see how the news is affecting Kim because she is still keeping it to herself. Like, gee, thank God he's dead. But meanwhile, she's like jamming up a chair against the door as if this would do anything if Lala wanted to kill them. All right. So let's get into breaking down the episode because I want to talk about all those things you mentioned. First of all, uh, it, like I mentioned to you before, this show loves process and we see that slide rule gift being manufactured itself. So if you ever wonder how those things get into that plexiglass, those awards, we get to see how his boys, the boys, as they call them, made that that slide rule for Werner. Can you remind me the background of that? Because I was struggling with that as well. 
This is the first time we've seen the slide rule, as far as I can remember. I think the point is, once again, it's one of those things the show does where it shows us something at the beginning and doesn't mm -hmm. reveal its importance until the ending. So what's interesting about it, in my mind, in retrospect, is that this seems to be a gift that was given by his team after he died. Yes. I think this was one of the gifts. She says they sent cards. Right. We're jumping she all the way to the end. She specifically says that. Yeah. <laughs> We're jumping immediately to the end of the episode. But this is when it kind of comes full circle. But we see the manufacture of this plexiglass. It's basically a slide rule in plexiglass. Lucite, which, you know, maybe. Lucite, maybe. Know. Yeah, exactly. And it's very interesting to see how that's done. Once again, I, I always wonder about how when you see those things, it's like, you know, how would you make it? It's like almost like baking a cake, right? Where you make the first layer, then you place the object in mm -hmm. it, and then you pour the rest around it. So anyway, if any questions you had about this, it's just like one of those, how did this get made <laughs> videos that I know your mom used to love watching. <laughs> I still remember. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> and apparently so does uh, Vince Gilligan. <laughs> well, this was the start of a bicker in my household between me and my husband over what we were looking at, why we were being shown what we were looking at, who this refers to. Right. With my husband, very annoyingly guessing that this refers to the engineer from the other season and me saying, why would that be? We haven't heard anything about him. How would that tie into anything that's going on right now? Then my husband promptly passed out and woke up for the last 10 minutes of the show <laughs> and said, see, I was right. <laughs> he usually is right on these things. Uh, He's always right. To it's your so frustration. <laughs> to your frustration. <laughs> oh, and most importantly, there is that we see the last thing, and it's obscured. We cannot read it. Is that there is a sticker placed on it, mm -hmm. and this is very important because that's the thing that we're once again we're jumping to the very very end of the episode is the thing that Lalo sees at the end that apparently is the clue he needs. But we don't know what it says. It's sending him probably to Albuquerque. As a matter of fact, if you watch the, pre the next up, I don't know if you did, it's pretty certain that he is heading to Albuquerque, although those trailers can be cut in a way to intentionally deceive. Right. The next thing we see is Fring is meticulously surveilling his operations at the Poyos Hermanos, and his spider sense starts to tingle. Crazy. He right? has a feeling. A he has disturbance a feeling. Something, in the force. <laughs> exactly. Yes. There is a disturbance in the force. Something's happening. And he just feels like Lalo's there. And we'd actually seen, you know, even as he's getting dressed, and I don't remember if this is in this episode or on the previously on, that he now has an ankle holster with a gun in it. And we will see that gun again before the end of the episode. Yep. Very funny. Next thing we see, like you mentioned, we see that Howard is meeting the Sandpiper mm -hmm. class action participants. Is that the right terminology? Um, the class, wow. the class, class, class members, yeah. class members, crazy how fast I put that part of my life behind me. Yes. Class <laughs> members. <laughs> <I forgot it. laughs> and I love the way this is shot, by the way, that we see Howard fidgeting. I'm a fidgeter too, by the way, when I'm sitting down, especially. Oh if I'm my God, me too. <laughs> I said, anyone, if that's the standard, I've been high my entire life. I can't stop bouncing my leg. But that's what I love about it. Like, I'm totally a fidgeter. Like, my legs are always going under a desk or something. And I, but of course, Cliff has now been, you know, cued in to this potential problem. So that's what we see. It's just beautifully framed that you see Ed Begley Jr. playing Cliff, staring at Howard's knee and Howard's knee bouncing in the foreground. It's, it's hilarious. Mm -hmm. very, very well done. I mean, I have literally had complete strangers that I'm sitting next to say, like, could you please stop doing that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I get it too. And then Howard, uh, you know, they've handed over badly, probably one of their junior associates. They have her making the pitch to why this settlement hasn't gone through yet. 
And of course, she starts to say, well, you know, you can go seek other counsel if you want to. And of course, Howard immediately jumps up and uh, up. Yes. does a great job here, don't you think? I what did you think yes, of his? This is answer? such a typical junior junior associate partner interaction of, you know, they'll let you run it until you make that misstep and they are <laughs> ready to jump in and course correct immediately, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, they don't even see me angry at her. They seem yeah. like this was totally in the plan that they would let her run yeah. as long as she could to get the experience. Exactly. And then they would just come in and swoop in and rescue her when they exactly. needed to. Exactly. And then a <laughs> very entertaining se- uh, sequence where we have Cliff. <laughs> And Howard and Cliff is confronting him, like you mentioned earlier, with all the things he's seen, all the evidence he's seen. And Howard, of course, goes, hold on a second. So it's this and then that. Oh, and who were you meeting with? Kim Wexler. And he's immediately like, oh, I got a problem. You're right. But it's not mm-hmm. a drug problem. <laughs> it's a Jimmy McGill problem. And uh, and he calls his uh, secretary. He like leaves Cliff in the dust, by the way. And Cliff still saying, I- I've been there before. I, I want to help you. On top of that, you have uh, him reaching out to his secretary and literally telling her to cancel his entire week, mm-hmm. <laughs> his entire week to get revenge on. It's a Jimmy. vendetta. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Next, we see that Jimmy slash Saul is at his office and he has his lineup of folks outside and his secretary shows up. <laughs> so we got the secretary. He she, he doubles her mm-hmm. commission or her salary from the DMV <laughs> to uh, well, bring her back. Little, whichever is lower. No, whichever is higher. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was great. <laughs> she almost walks out on whatever is lower. Yeah. <laughs> the DMV doubling is probably not that impressive. But she also is very wary, of course, because she's thinking that she wanted to work with Kim, not with him. And she's like, yeah, OK, so where is Kim exactly? It's like, well. But it is fun to see her come back. I also like his line where he says that Saul is to law what the Kentucky Fried Chicken is to chicken. And I'm like, he should have said pollos para hermanos, by the way. Uh-huh. Oh, and then uh, the next thing we see, I forgot about the scene, actually, is we see that Kim is meeting with one of her coworkers and she's fishing for some information here. She wants to know, this is once again, some vagaries of this plot they have in place. They need to know some of the players on the case. And she gets one piece of information, which she's kind of proud of. And I guess it's the, is it the judge or a former judge? Sounds like they're going to mediation, which is a very common thing that would Mm -hmm. happen in a class action. You know, they almost will force you into mediation a lot of the time. It seems like they've arranged to have a mediator and a mediator is often a retired judge. She gets the mediator's name. And yeah, I agree that she's fishing. It also seems like she's fishing in a very shallow pond. It doesn't seem very hard to (laughs) get information from this lady. Yeah, this lady can't wait to talk. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, she probably could have just outright asked her and she would have happily told <laughs> just her. Said, so, right. yeah. <laughs> and then we see Kim back at her apartment. She's smoking indoors. <laughs> Not good. She usually smokes out on the patio. Mm-hmm. And she seems concerned. She's like waiting for Jimmy to come home. She knows that Lalo's out there. And this is weird because she still hasn't told him. And really, honestly, there are multiple times in this episode where she should explicitly tell him to this same point at the beginning of the episode, she is tossing and turning. She can't sleep. She wakes up. Uh, eventually, Saul wakes up as well. And she says, oh, I couldn't sleep. So I'm just working on a case. But she's put a chair against the door. And Jimmy just writes it off as, oh, she's still rattled from the whole Lalo experience. And he has, she has a perfect opening here to say Lalo's still alive or they, they suspect yeah. that he is. And she says nothing. She says nothing to him. So this is very interesting that she's keeping this under her hat. Yes. And clearly very, very stressed out about it. Absolutely. So- As I said before, the fact that she thinks a chair up against the door is going to do a damn thing when it comes to Lalo. Like (laughs) she's lost control of this situation if she ever had it. Right. 
And she's also feeling conflicted in other ways. I mean, going back to that conversation she had with her ex-coworker, she says, oh, you know, at first I thought you were crazy to leave. And then I saw what you were doing with this pro bono. And it's, I like, just makes me feel better about the law again. And you see, once again, interestingly, reading Kim's face, she seems almost a little hurt by this because I think she knows she's got the scam going on. She may feel like she's trying to do it for the right reasons. Maybe she wants that money to do her pro bono, pro bono work. She's trying to be a role model in some ways. So when this uh, woman tells her, you make me feel better about the law, <laughs> I don't know if Kim really feels like she's the exemplar in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saul gets a call from a Mr. Ward and the secretary tells her or tells him that it, it sounds like money. Sounds like he's rich, but he shows up at a boxing gym and he's like, what is going on here? Turns out yeah. it's Howard. <laughs> Here's your favorite scene of the episode. <laughs> so annoying. I mean, what was this? Uh, okay. <laughs> I was w- worried about Bob Odekirk's heart again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop making jokes about his heart attack, though. <laughs> this will be the last one, hopefully. The setup is just so perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I actually didn't mind this. I mean, it, maybe not the styling of it. I thought the style of it was a little corny. I just like the psychology of it that Jimmy can walk out. He can just walk out yes. of the room and he can't let it go. And at that moment, I feel like, is this him still being his old self where he just can't let anything go, which we've seen multiple times throughout Has his- to take the bait. And I felt like that's what he was doing, but I think there's a little more to it because that's going to pay off in uh, in another scene when he gets back home again. Another interesting thing that happens here is immediately after, first of all, I think Howard says something interesting in telling him that it's like you want to get caught. And I think he's reading that as Jimmy wants to get caught because he has this kind of self-defeating personality, but I think he does want to get caught. It's so obvious that they had the meeting with Kim when they saw the you know the prostitute get knocked out of the car and right. stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they want Howard to come at them. So there's some reason that he's this is still part of their setup. And I think that becomes explicit mm-hmm. in uh, a following scene. But maybe what they don't know is coming is that Howard gets a PI to basically follow them full time. He wants to know every single thing that Jimmy's doing and he wants him to give him every single piece of information he can get on Jimmy. So this is pretty hardcore investigation. And what do you think? Do you think what the fallout of that is going to be? And, and I'll throw something in there before you answer that might muddy the waters intentionally, which is Mike is also having them followed. So what's going to happen when Mike sees this PI mm. following and is he going to warn them or not? Because he'll probably be able to figure out it's a PI because he's pretty good at that type of thing. Or is there going to be you know one of these lunkheads potentially following them around? And is going to think he's like one of Lalo's men. And then that gets really ugly. They beat him up. They kill him. God forbid something like that happens. And then, of course, that becomes a huge complexity to this whole thing. <laughs> if now, you know, inadvertently, Kim and Jimmy are pulled into one of those things. Yeah. You know what? If it puts an end to this Howard subplot, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I do not think it's over yet. But I do think it's going to wrap up probably. Once again, I mentioned the fact that I'm pretty certain we have to have a time jump between the first half and the second half of the season. So I'm pretty sure that you know mm-hmm. we're only two episodes away from that break. And I think that this thing's going to wrap up by then one way or the other. I have to say, as much as I love this show, like this is something I just can't really care about yeah. at this point. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it hasn't bothered me the way. I, I, I'm more interested in why it bothers you as much as it does rather than I don't think it's excellent. I just, uh, it hasn't bothered me. Yeah, I guess it's just not compelling to me. Um, So it feels like I would rather be spending that time with other people or with other thoughts. Good point. So I think that's why I get annoyed at it. It's like, why am I losing time on this when I could be spending time getting more information about Goss or 
something that to me is more interesting. I'm sure there are people that love this. You know what? I see your point there. I would rather be spending more time with some of these other characters, given we have this time frame. But moment to moment, it hasn't bothered me. But I do see your point. I mean, we're, we are yeah, getting like close to the, the end. Yeah, like it's the end of the series, yeah. right? Like, and this is where we're spending time. It just doesn't gel for me. This seems more like a middle of the series type of thing. What if it pays off? Let's say, I'm just going to speculate here. What if it turns out that Howard does this investigation the PI, you know, Mike does not, he, he said he was not going to intervene in anything they're doing. So even if he knows this guy's just a PI and it's not dangerous to them, he does not warn them. And what if this leads to Kim's demise, maybe not her death, but, you know, maybe she is disgraced in some way as a lawyer and loses everything. Would that make it the fact that this is like kind of petty and secondary, that is the thing that ends up ruining her. Would that make it more interesting to you in retrospect? I guess it would. Yeah, because I wouldn't have seen that coming. <laughs> <laughs> Except I ruined it for you now. But. <laughs> Except now you spoiled it. Yeah. <laughs> I have no further knowledge. I'm just curious to know. No, if I mean, that's an interesting idea that it is going to tie into something much bigger than just this little subplot. Because he did get very mad when he heard that Kim is involved as well. Yeah. We have that whole sequence. Kim is worried. Jimmy shows up and they have kind of like they unpack their day as they kind of their routine. Mm-hmm. And he tells her, you know, well, I let him punch me and I don't know why I should have just walked away. And yes. she goes, maybe it's because you know what's coming next. Howard finding out what was happening wasn't shocking to them. Like, oh no, we've been discovered. It was part of the plan because they're so non-plussed by any of this, right? Mm-hmm. Next, we see that in the middle of the night, <laughs> this is this sequence is crazy. We see that Mike has to be smuggled into the house. Gus, oh is, my so, gosh, yes. <laughs> Gus is so paranoid. I know. And it's really, I feel like it's really coming to new heights. Like he is truly shaken in a way that it's like, it's beyond his normal precautions because he is a very careful person always. But this is like, yeah, paranoia. Yeah. I mean, he's OCD in general. And I think that it's like, he has now applied that to this and it's becoming like, so everybody else has got to be dragged into this (laughs) OCD uh, thing as well. I do love uh, Mike. (laughs) getting out of the trunk like that you know mike has this kind of signature grunt and he's like this is this is really like the most signature mike grunt imaginable with him being like i cannot believe i'm smuggled in in a trunk he's like my life what happened to my life and then it turns out that uh gustavo and my wife uh deal with their stress in the same way but they just start cleaning Although I have not yet seen a break out the toothbrush for the, the grout cleaning yet. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> that may eventually be the case. Uh, I wish that was my coping device. That would be so useful. <laughs> and Mike, uh, seeing this is like, okay, this has gone too far, but he has an idea. Not a bad idea at all, which is to say, hey, why don't we like put you in a tomb, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. the unbuilt uh, mega what we call this, the mega meth lab, which we are going to see yes. many, many times in the Breaking Bad series. Yes. <clears throat> still unfinished. You no, know, it's still just the scaffolding and basically the excavation been, has been done, but nothing else. And I think but, Mike's yeah. idea is to say, hey, why don't you sleep here? You only so have you one can edge. chill the F out exactly. and stop making us all insane. <laughs> you, have a, you have a giant cave. That giant cave has like, you know, hundreds of tons of bedrock on top of it. No one can come in through there. There's only one entry point to this whole thing. And uh, hey, if you have guards up here, you'll have plenty of warning before anybody shows up. Yes. 
I, I think Gustavo is weighing this out. Tell me what your read is on this, because I do not know what it is. He counts off a certain number of steps and then places the gun under the that construction equipment, under that backhoe, yeah. I guess. Uh, you know, my five-year-old could tell you what piece of equipment. <laughs> oh that yeah, was, he would. They would definitely know. <laughs> he was not awake at the time. I. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, but with Gus, it's always 10 steps ahead, right? So what's strange about it wasn't just that he's like, here is a place where I can put the gun because there's not that many places down there. There's not that much to hide it in. It was the counting off of the paces. I'm like, what is he counting mm. off? It's very mm-hmm, strange. Mm-hmm. But it's going to pay off. We know. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> this is all set up. And then we suddenly are in Germany. And this whole sequence is quite fascinating. I found this very entertaining. I think oh, some people might feel this. glued to the screen. I was Great. glued. I'm yeah. glad because I think some people might feel like this is a digression. I found this thing so compelling. That Agree. Not only to see Lalo in this different context, very charming, very, and you feel mm-hmm. like this is part of Lalo's persona. He's not just putting mm-hmm. on an act. It's almost like in an alternate world, he would just be a businessman traveling to Germany. Yes, right? agree. I had a big question mark in my notes, by the way. How does he know? <laughs> because we, as we discussed at the beginning, I'm not sure how we got here. <laughs> I'm curious to know how he got here. I like, and I was trying and like racking my brain last night. And I'm like, okay, he did know there was some construction going on there, but how would he have gotten Werner's name? I'm, they went out of their way to hide his name. So I don't know how, how they would, he would have gotten Werner's name. You know what? Actually, I take that all back. It is possible that it wasn't Werner that he tracked down. It's possible it is the wife. Because if he did go to the hotel and do all that investigation, she's the one who supposedly was checking in and then never arrived, right? So maybe Mm. he tracked her down and from her, he's like, well, who's her husband? Werner, architect, died in a cave-in, et cetera, right? So he's like, huh, very suspicious, right? So in Albuquerque, right? So strange. Maybe so. So that could be how it is, but I'm still a little confounded by it. I mean, it really just was like an underlying thing in my brain the entire time, as much as I enjoyed these scenes of like, how did this come to pass? And then interestingly, we find out here the the cover story to Warner's death, right? That there had been a cave in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. None of his men attended the funeral, which is interesting. Were they not allowed to? Like, did Gus threaten them or something to keep stay away? Have they been disappeared, like murdered? I don't know if they've been murdered because they were sending those gifts. And I believe that gift that ends up being the clue here probably was sent not from Gus, like as a cover-up, probably sent legitimately from one of the boys, as they call them. Yeah. And we saw at the end what happened to all those guys. Like they all got put in different vehicles with different routes home. Do you remember that? Right. Like some of them were flying to the West Coast first and then flying back. Some of them are going South first and then going back. I kind of vaguely remember that of them being split off into little groups and each being told which way they were going to go. But I do think in the end, they were all sent home. I think I just pieced that together how this is going to come together because of what you just said. He says, who were these guys? Because, you know, obviously right. any one of those guys there would know what's going on. Yes. And she's like, I don't know. I never knew who it was. He was very private about his business. And they didn't show up for the funeral, of course, intentionally, because they don't want anybody knowing who this team of folks was. And like you said, they even got routed all over the country, all over the world, potentially. They were traveling, like, who knows, like spending time in like Hong Kong before they flew home so that it would not look suspicious, right? You know, you'd have to do a lot of leg work to find them all in the same place at the same time, especially if you drive hundreds of miles to an airport, like you'd have no idea how you arrived. Yes, exactly. So all of this is cover up, but what if the gift with the slide rule has a, maybe someone's name on it, like from, or more likely 
the name of the manufacturer who manufactured this because that person will know when he shows up who ordered it. Exactly. Who ordered it. And then that person will have a story to tell. What a good point. That had not occurred to me at all. Were you able right to <laughs> read the sticker? Because I no, will say no, in my no. middle age, my site isn't what it used to be. And I often am far enough back from the TV that I'm kind of just like, well, no idea what that said. <laughs> I just move on. In the first moments when the sticker's put on, yes. that the thumb is on top of the sticker explicitly gotcha. okay. to hide it. And then, of gotcha. course, when Lalo flips it over and sees the sticker, we know that he's flipping it over to see the sticker. Yes. But we, like it's the sticker is facing him, not us. So there's no way right. to read that sticker. Okay. This show loves to set up these mysteries. So we talk about it like now. <laughs> Yes. And of course, I think that what I just said makes sense. And I think that is going to be it does. the unraveling of this. Yeah. And this woman, while very lovely, I have to say, like, I would be suspicious of a totally strange person asking me some of these questions seem to go beyond, but maybe she's lonely and she's just happy to be talking to somebody. I'm of two minds on it. On the one, I could feel that absolutely, you know, my husband died in some weird circumstances. And then all of a sudden, this is a very strange coincidence, right? But on the other hand, you know, I've had very strange coincidences. When I used to travel for work all the time, I would run into people like just be talking and someone will say, oh, I could tell your accent. You're from Jersey. I'm like, oh, yeah, I am. And then I would just start having a conversation. And I'm like, no way. Like, <laughs> like I knew your cousin, you know, so right, weird, weird right. stuff does happen. Right. So I, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. And also, I feel, you know, this is very important to uh, Tony Dalton's performance. Lalo does not come off here at all, at all, ominously, at all. Not for one. Agree. Second. Yes. Very true. You know, I just don't like nosy people personally. So it would <laughs> yeah, probably it was be awkward per- yes, to like, me personally yes. because I would just be like, "Back off, man!" And she clearly is kind of lonely, and I think does appreciate like she's sitting at a bar alone, right? Yes, right. She says that she, you know, and she's participating in this trivia game. Yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> and she's and, right, of course. And she was right, and we see that you know she is living alone and um, just, you know, has her dog and she wishes she could invite him up, but very, you know, very smart of her to know it's, well, maybe she thinks she's not ready, but also not a great idea to invite a strange man into your home. I feel. Yeah. So I'll buy it. I do buy it. And I really thought this whole scene just in, in a vacuum is so beautifully written because you see so many things playing out here. First of all, to make you really, I mean, my, my, my pulse was pounding. I was so in, I, I loved this woman, basically. I've had so mm-hmm. much sympathy for her. So sweet. In yeah. such a tiny amount of time. And I'm like, please don't die. Please don't die. Please don't die. So and to- I, I have to say, I was impressed with Lalo that his immediate thing was not to go someplace violent. <laughs> he yes. actually was waiting for her to leave in order to break into the house. So I give Lalo credit for not just... <laughs> trying to incapacitate her immediately, I guess. I honestly do feel like he has sympathy for her in talking to her and does not want to harm her. I honestly feel that way. And simultaneously, I have to say that he's a very smart, practical guy. And in that circumstance, killing Werner's widow is going to raise alarm bells all over the place. So I think that that is, you know, you don't see him coming that way. Hmm. I mean, if he had to, he would have. I think part of that is that he doesn't want to because, hey, the more dead bodies you leave in your way, the more attention you draw to yourself, right? To your point about, you know, her being suspicious of this, obviously, you know, coincidences happen and it is a big coincidence, but I also think this is very clever in the fact that he doesn't approach her. He's just talking to the bartender and Mm -hmm, like, it's almost mm -hmm. like she's eavesdropping on him. So it's this kind of very, um, uh, you know, incepted way of getting her to open up. Yes. 
And then, of course, she's lonely, like you said, and she starts to share too much information. And then he starts to ask questions. And at that point where he kind of has these follow-up questions, that's where he starts getting suspicious. But at mm-hmm. that point, you know, they've probably been talking and drinking for well over an hour, right? So right. I did think that was cleverly done. And I love, once again, building the sympathy for this beautiful character, I thought, was, you know, her showing up at the, her doorstep and being like, I would invite you in, but I have to get up early tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And then she goes, that's not true because yeah. that's kind of like, I don't, I'm not ready for this actually. Right. And I thought that was really beautiful. I agree. And he doesn't kill her. Thank goodness. <laughs> but it does look like he's going to kill her for a while. And I was very worried. Yes. Yes. And of course we mentioned that at the top, right at the top of this whole recap, <laughs> he sees that something. And I do think we've unraveled what that is during this conversation that there's, you know, whoever manufactured that plaque knows somebody who was on that team and Lalo's going to find that person. And that is going to unravel this whole thing. And that person probably lived. He, he, we may actually, once again, as far as this head fake goes, it looked in the coming up scenes that Lalo is in Albuquerque, but that might not be true because whoever he's looking for may very well still be in Germany, right? He's another one of these guys who probably returned to Germany. And uh, so he's might be continuing his investigation uh, in Germany in the next episode, but then there is going to be a confrontation. And I'm pretty sure that's going to be before the break. Gus probably knew, leaving that gun behind, this is where the confrontation is going to happen. And he's starting to think of an endgame to lure Lalo there and dispose of him, I would assume. And I can't imagine who could possibly win. If the two of these people are in a room together, which one of them is going to kill who? Hmm, Sona, I'm so confused. Who could possibly- it's so hard to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> which of these two people will survive to Breaking Bad? Oh, wait a second. The one who's in Breaking Bad. <laughs> Given that, do you feel like this is anticlimactic because we kind of know what's going to happen for to most of these people, right? Does that? I know we've touched on it before, but is this dampening this at all for you? Um, no, because I think this show does such a good job of creating tense moments that I think it's almost a relief for me. Actually, <laughs> others might feel differently. It's almost a relief for me. I can kind of just appreciate the dialogue and what's going on, those little background details that they add when I already know where it's headed. Uh, so in that way, I actually appreciate it as somebody who can get very stressed out by stuff like this. <laughs> what do you think? I feel the same way. I, and I don't know why. I almost feel like they're trying to solve a puzzle and I'm curious to see how they solve it. I think maybe that's what's got me so intrigued still. I don't know. I mean, I think it's a testament to how well-constructed the show is that it's still enjoyable, even though you don't have that tension of who will live and who will die. Right. Although we, we do still have that mystery for Kim, right? For Kim, of, yes. You know, what is going to happen to Kim? But a show that is not as well-constructed, those scenes would not be as enjoyable without the tension of who's going to survive. But here, I think, especially having watched Breaking Bad, it kind of just adds to the mythology of the character, knowing what they've been through and the experiences they've had and how it could affect, you know, what they do or decide in the future. I think it just, it's almost like a type of character development. Yeah, I agree. There's many murder mysteries where they have 10 suspects and all 10 of them seem equally likely. And then it's like the author decides one on the last page. So you really just need to know who that is because until the very last page, it's like they haven't decided which one it's going to be. And then there's the opposite, right? You have a, a, a book that is very clever in its finale. Like I can imagine if you read Gone Girl, which I thought is a very 
well done. I book. did, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if you read the end of that, you'll be like, "How did we get here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the how the how did we get here is very yes. interesting. Way more interesting than yeah. You know, she's dead or she's not dead, right? Is way more right. interesting than that. So, uh, and I guess that's kind of the correlation I'd make with uh, the the delivery of the story. It's more about how than who. Right. It's the journey, not the destination. It's the journey. It's always about the journey. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> yep. You know what though? And in general, I would say that I prefer those. Not everybody, you know, Breaking Bad, we talked about this in the last episode, Breaking Bad really nails that landing, but it doesn't mm-hmm. always happen that way. Right. It's so true. You, got, you got to appreciate the journey. But that being said, I am expecting a really knockout ending to Saul. And maybe I am setting my expectations too high, but I think Breaking Bad is the the benchmark for this yeah. set of shows. Mm-hmm. And that's probably going to be hard to, to achieve. So maybe I have I to start to lower my expectations. Yes. All right. I think that wraps up the episode. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. It's beautiful out there. It is. And just two more episodes of Saul before the break. Wow. And then maybe uh, we'll be covering that now and then show possibly. Yeah. That seemed interesting. Not sure if anyone's going to watch that show, but Hey, that's (laughs) the other part. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's all, I guess on my part, always. Yeah. What are you going to (laughs) do? All right. Thanks again. Okay, talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye.